Salams and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we shall be listening in to a conversation between Professor Salman Said and Professor Ella Shohat. Professor Shohat is Professor of Cultural Studies at New York University and is on the editorial board of several prominent journals. Okay, this is Network Reorient, and I'm here with Professor Ella Shahat of New York University. We are sitting in the residence of the University of Granada, overlooking Alhambra, and this is part of the Critical Muslim Studies Summer School, and this is the 10th year that we've been running this summer school, and Professor Ella Shahat has been a member of this, and um, I just thought, Ella, that, you know, here we are, overlooking Alhambra, maybe we can start by thinking about 1492 and what do you think the significance of 1492 is to the work that we've been ongoing um, both in decline circles but in wider circles how do you how do you see that sort of developing well first thank you Salman for uh, inviting me to have a conversation I'm delighted uh, to for us to have this chance to dialogue right here in front of the Alhambra this is actually a, a, a very exciting uh, opportunity to engage uh, also our students here at the seminar. So um, uh, one, it is really a wonderful uh, place and a moment to be in. Um, uh, this actually, your question reminds me of uh, the quincentenary of 1992, where I co-organized a conference with uh, a Native American colleague and another colleague working uh, with indigenous people in Brazil. Uh, which was called Goodbye Columbus, and uh, it was an, an effort to critique the, of course, the Columbus narrative about the discovery, but I also, it was important for me to bring on board what happened here in Iberia, both the fall of Granada and the expulsion uh, of Jews and Muslims uh, from, uh, from Iberia. Uh, so 1492, uh, it was not just a year, but ultimately a concept. Mm -hmm. What do we do with it? Um, it's a trope, ultimately, of uh, not only of the nostalgia for Al-Andalus before the fall of Granada, but it is a, a, a trope of trauma, mm -hmm. uh, precisely because uh, of all the poems that were written about the keys, yeah. and then evoked uh, and invoked in various... Uh, contemporary poetries about displacement. Uh, one of them, of course, Mahmoud Darwish and mm. his uh, uh, mourning about the, uh, the Arabs who are leaving uh, Al-Andalus uh, and the violins mm. are weeping for them. Uh, so this kind of, you know, for me, Columbus, Palestine and Arab Jews mm. is, was a way of thinking about, not only about 1492, but how it is invoked. Another issue was for me uh, not to take Al-Andalus as an anomalous yeah. moment uh, within the history of uh, Islamic civilization, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. rather yeah. to look into it uh, in relation to the multiple uh, uh, convivencias, yeah, to yeah, use yeah, a Spanish yeah, term, yeah. of the Ayush in contemporary <laughs> Palestinian uh, lingo, yeah. uh, that uh, uh, look into where in Baghdad, in Fez, in, uh, in Cairo, mm. where Jews, Muslims, and Christians uh, coexisted and lived together. Yeah, and I think it's very really interesting because um, one of the things, as you know, is this kind of valorization of Andalusia and on the grounds that it is unique and it is not common. 
And I think what that misses out, and I think, you know, you explained this really well, is the idea of a different kind of way of living together. Um, because it becomes so kind of singular, rather than actually seeing it as a multiple kind of thing. And this is one of the things that, you know, um, I often, in my work, is used kind of Martin Hodgson's term, Islamicate, because I think it allows for a certain more openness, in a way, of how what was constituted by the Islamicate was not just a Muslim project as such. Um, there are many, many elements to it. So I guess one of the things about 1492, and, as you know, doing the summer school, is really looking at the significance of it between as a kind of beginning of something. And, and you mentioned the conference good by Columbus, but there's also an argument to what extent is 1492, and we mean that in a sort of metaphor and a symbol rather than the exact date, um, really the way in which we can understand the world or it is something quite specific. In particular, I'm just thinking that, you know, we know that we have the expulsion of the Jews, we have the conquest of Granada, and, you know, we have then the discovery of an island when Columbus is looking for um, Japan, he's on the way to the Orient anyway, and he comes as a crusader. So we have all of these three events, more or less, in this kind of period. How do you think those events going to play out? And I'm just thinking in relation to what is significant, I guess, uh, about 1492? Yeah, uh, so I think, um, you know, you have uh, the two separate narratives that even around the quincentenary yeah. events, the critique of the discourses of discovery which indigenous people, um, you know, staged, uh, Columbus did not discover us, and the critique of what happened in Granada and the Edict of Expulsion, there were actually three separate mm. events. Yeah. For the most part, Jews uh, commemorated the expulsion separately from the events that, uh, for the most part, mm. Muslims remembered Granada and the commemoration of the genocidal practices sure. of Columbus. And uh, uh, for someone like myself, it was important to bring uh, all those events into conversations, mm. not only because they actually linked historically mm. in the most material yeah. sense. Uh, you know, some have uh, shown that you know the property uh, taken from the dispossessed Jews and Muslims actually financed uh, Columbus's mm. project. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but, I, but also to look into the discourses, the yes. discourses around Limpieza de Sangri, mm. the diabolization of the Jew and the Muslim, mm. how they prepared a, a conceptual apparatus with which to deal with mm. the newly discovered so-called uh, pe uh, people of uh, West Indies. Yes. Now we know yeah. it was yeah. Indian, but then it was yeah. Yeah. Uh, an oriental sure. space yeah. of the coast of yeah. India, yeah. hence the term, of course, uh, Indians, yeah, right? Yeah. Or in Arabic, still a Eurocentric term, <laughs> and the Hamad, you know, yeah. the, the red Indian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so this was important for me to to look into this uh, event as linked, but also what exactly coming to your question, how it would explain the world for us. Mm -hmm. uh, in our book on thinking Eurocentrism, uh, Robertson and I argued that actually the Columbus narrative was not just um, a, a, a fairy tale that prepared for, for us to understand Columbus as a hero, but it prepared a way of uh, imagining the world according to this masculinist discovery from the point of view of, uh, of Christianity and scientific knowledge according to 
uh, Eurocentric paradigm, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in terms of who's the subject of history and who's the object of history. So in some ways, the 1492 is still a foundational moment to, uh, for colonialist Eurocentric narrative that we must continuously decolonize no, that's very interesting because, I mean, you know, this, um, as you know, you've worked on um, Ebed Said's Orientalism, you're, you're, you're great renown on your work there. But one of the things of that very complex and brilliant and infuriating book in equal measures in a way has been that when you're able to pin down the beginning of the uh, project of Orientalism, you kind of have, okay, you, you know, it's, um, it's, a, it's the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in 1798, and that, in a way, is that kind of narrative. And you know that, that the difference between those 300 years is really it's a, huge, a difference. huge difference, but it's also a difference which is now being used to frame or distinguish the post-colonial from the decolonial as one aspect of it. But also, I think it raises questions about what is it that is really at the key of all of this. And I wonder whether you had, um, how you situate that kind sure. of Sure, um, yeah, I, in my work uh, in terms of linking Said's critique of Orientalism to the moment of 1492, it forced me to ask, when does Orientalism begin? Yeah. And to answer that question, I actually uh, departed in a way from Said's post-enlightenment uh, narrative of the Napoleonic inva mm. uh, invasion and mm. invention mm. Yeah, yeah. of Egypt and the Orient, which mm. is true and important because the Enlightenment did, did produce a certain kind of colonial racialist narratives. But at the same time, I felt that uh, beginning, you know, to mm. use also a Saidian <laughs> term in, in that sense, as opposed to origins, mm. beginning the narration uh, about uh, colonialism in the Middle East, specifically with that moment, misses uh, a crucial historical moment of orientalization that took place in 1492 in relation to the Americas. So my argument was that before orientalism arrives mm. to the so-called Orient, yeah. in fact, it arrives to the Americas. So the first objects, mm. subjects, yeah. <laughs> of the orientalist projections are ultimately the indigenous peoples of the Americas and then the African who are enslaved and they receive this kind of uh, 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 demonization mm -hmm. that uh, Jews and Muslims uh, were subjected to. Uh, so ultimately I say that Orientalism, contrary also to sociological historical mm -hmm. narrative that presumably began with the arrival of the Turcos, mm -hmm. the, as they are called in Latin America, or the Arabs arriving to North America, it actually begins before uh, uh, the immigration, the massive immigration in the late 19th century mm. and turn of the 20th century with the stereotyping mm. of the Turcos, mm. but rather that it begins with the very paradigms, the conceptual paradigm of 1492 mm. arriving to the Americas. Uh, and uh, in a sense, Orientalism uh, uh, is constitutive of uh, the Americas in terms of after all, as we know, Columbus imagined yeah. that he is in the Orient, that's, mm -hmm. uh, and that's one thing. The other thing is, um, you know, when we, therefore, when we think about 1492, it can help us understand the later on Napoleonic invasion, mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
of Orientalism, mm. the post-Enlightenment Orientalism. So the two moment, moments must be linked, of course, even though we understand that they may be grounded uh, in different kind of conceptual apparatus, one more be what we call today more religious yeah, yeah. narratives, uh, the limpieza de sangre, yeah. the cleansing of the mm. blood, which is... Uh, but also in, in the post-enlightenment already grounded in racial, yeah. scientific yeah. racial yeah. narratives. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's related, but it's nonetheless a shift in emphasis. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the key kind of things there, because there is obviously those who make a very strong difference between the two. And I guess I'm one of those people who tend to see more continuities. Exactly. Uh, uh, because, and I would agree yeah, with you completely. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, you already have... Because uh, I think it's what makes 1492 in a way really, really interesting is, as I want to argue, that you actually have a shift in governance to governmentality. Now, we know Foucault talks about governmentality as almost an Asaidian kind of, you know, puts it down at the kind of what he calls the classical age. But if you actually think about it, up till this point, there is a general kind of loose consensus about being a ruler, is that you just, the rule, pay the taxes, are not particularly rude to the rulers, and they're allowed to get on with things. And I guess one of the things with 1492, again, symbolically illustrates, is that now you have a population which you want to regulate to make sure that their conversions to new forced are followed through, you then are able to redeploy some of the machinery of the Inquisition to do that. So the state begins to assume a bigger role in people's lives. And so I think it's really interesting that, and again, you do this in a, uh, you know, the metaphor of this kind of blank state of the new world, where you were able to explain, bring all of these things together. And generate the new yeah. world order. Yeah. <laughs> no, but this is one of the things that, you know, in, the, in a way, what you're saying is that, you know, from your other work that you've talked about, that really the East begins in the West kind of thing with, with, yes, the, with the kind exactly. of, you know, with the notion of that the Oriental, yeah. that the creation of the Americas initially is a creation or addition to or, the Orient, Orient ultimately. 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 And I think, that's all gone. Yeah, yeah, no, just to, to uh, it's, it's fascinating because the, when we speak about laws, uh, in fact, uh, Jews and Muslims were prohibited from coming yeah. to the Americas. I mean, there was yeah. actually a law there were decrees in 1501 and 1530 that against Muslims and Jews entering the Americas. So kind of a Muslim ban before. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. and, you know, so Judeophobia, Islamophobia yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, are actually also constitutive yeah. Yeah. Of, of the Americas. And what's fascinating is that the conversos Muri and Moriscos yeah. were able to enter. Now... They were practicing often, they were called Novo Cristianos, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. New Christians, yeah. uh, which is different than the terms you say in Hebrew, unseen, mm. literally the raped ones. Mm. Uh, and the Moriscos, you know, they were practicing hiddenly Judaism and Islam, mm. uh, uh, and some were subjected to Inquisition. The Inquisition yeah. was exported to the Americas. So we still have families still today that trace their origins, be it in the Amazon or mm. in what oh, wow. is now New Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, in the, uh, New Mexico, the south of the U.S., because mm -hmm. it was under Mexican mm -hmm. rule before the Mexican-American War, where some families, you know, they never understood why they had, in certain periods, unleavened bread, mm. pansemita, that oh, they call wow. Semite bread, mm -hmm. for example. So, um, so actually, Judaism and Islam, despite the decrees, continued to be, be practiced, yeah. and the Inquisition continued in, in the Americas. 
But what's interesting, you also have a certain spaces to where, say, Sephardic, a Sephardic Jews escape, mm. say Holland, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Spinoza, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And some of those uh, Sephardic Jews went with the Dutch. So, for example, in the areas of Brazil called Pernambuco, yeah. uh, which was under Dutch rule, you had Portuguese Jews wow. who contributed to Brazil through the Dutch. In fact, when the Dutch def- were defeated by the Portuguese, they ended up going to New Amsterdam, New York, where the first synagogue under Dutch rule in Manhattan was a Portuguese synagogue coming from the Amazon. So in fact, before uh, New York, the Jews were in Pernambuco, the Sephardic Jews, and they helped establish in what is now downtown Manhattan. Uh, it moved up. It's still called sure. the, yeah. the Portuguese synagogue, mm. but it is now in a move. So those uh, itineraries are not just fascinating because of the historical yeah. movement, but what they tell us is that contemporary definitions of identities are constantly articulated conjuncturally and relationally. So the same kind of uh, anxiety, mm. the Ibero-American anxiety about the tenting of the blood by the Moors and the Sephardis, and the mobilization project in Latin America was often about imitating France, kind of this, you know, even literally with architectural large boulevards, etc., was a way also of shedding the Moorish Sephardic past of the small lanes of, uh, oh, yeah, of yeah. Al-Andalus oh, and fantastic. Iberia. Yeah, yeah. So it was cleansing. So almost an arch- architectural space was being reorganized around through that to restructure all of that. Exactly. Great, so uh, colonial modernity and the westernization was also about deorientalize yeah. our yeah. us ourselves, God forbid, from the yeah. But westernization has always been about deorientalization, and in some cases you have to Absolutely. sort of you have to be considering yourself oriental, then you can be deorientalized. So in a way, exactly. it's a trap. But you know. But you know what's interesting about the term it's a deorientalizing. Yeah, yeah. So we're using it in two senses. We have the Saidian notion, yeah. right? Is you know the critique of Eurocentric epistemology, mm-hmm. and ultimately deorientalizing ourselves, we the colonized yeah. people of the Orient from Western yeah. influence. But here it's something else. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's yeah. the idea we're cleansing ourselves. This is a racialist phobic discourse. So it's a different when they say, you know, ultimately they don't want the Orient. Uh, you know, in Brazil, the the women were still wearing mm-hmm. veil for uh, kind of uh, uh, lace. Mm-hmm. Uh, laced veil f- to the church. They had uh, Morisco shatters. Uh, they replaced them with glass. So literally, those kind of transformations. And then they have the repression simultaneously mm. of Muslim rebellions mm. in Bahia, in mm. the north of Brazil, where uh, Western Africans were communicating in Arabic because they knew how to read and write. Read Whereas their owners sometimes mm. did mm. not know yeah. how to. So um, this work, which is addressed, say, um, you know, Juan Reis, for mm-hmm. example, in, uh, a Brazilian historian, mm-hmm. talks uh, quite a bit about it. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, this uh, idea of how you situate yourself vis-a-vis the Ibero Moorish had, you know, deorientalizing them. But at the same time, you have another discourse that romanticizes that Moorish... That always confuses um, Orientalists, in a way, mm-hmm. because they, often their first response is, um, some of my best friends are Oriental. So that's <laughs> wrong, I mean, a variation on that, you know? Sure. But, and, and there's a kind of thing, well, because I like them, or because I appreciate that and appreciate yeah. the cuisine and things like that, 
somehow that's not a relationship of uh, domination, it's not a relationship which is constituted outside that, it can't be exploitative, etc. And we all know the examples of, the, you know, I can't be, um, we, hundreds of times you hear this thing that some of our best friends are filling, uh, whatever ethnically marginalised group you are is the way there. So I can see the kind of thing there, right. sorry, just when you just talking. But, but historically, well, uh, you know, this is sort of like in the intimacy space, and mm. you would have that, what, what's interesting, in places in Latin America, you would have people bragging about their Morisco or Sephardi, mm-hmm. they would say, you see, you see our mm. dark skin. But there is a history also of valorizing mm-hmm. the Morisco Sephardi. Uh, and it comes, for example, in the problematic work, which you know I discuss in my work on tropical orientalism mm-hmm. with Robert Stem, that we actually see, Gilberto Freire was uh, valorizing that mm-hmm. and saying the flexibility. Mm-hmm. Now, how the flexibility around race, mm. the ability to, inter, you know, even sexualize yeah. yeah. this yeah. Uh, relation to the black woman and to the indigenous woman, but to pee in the hammocks, they were mm. having mm. hanky-pankies, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is kind yeah, of, yeah. Uh, uh, is very much actually a relational discourse vis-a-vis the North. Mm. In other words, we are not as racist, mm. our slavery was not as bad as you in mm. the North, mm. because you were Puritan-y, yeah. Puritan and phobic. And that's kind of the reverse Weberian no, no. argument, yeah, yeah, whereas yeah. Weber speaks about the North Protestant, you know, product, productive. Here you have a romanticist discourse about us. We're not like you. We're actually not phobic. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, also no, this is really, highly really very problematic. Common. Yeah, exactly. So Orientalism is not just about the Orient and the Ibero-American. It is also vis-a-vis the North yeah. and the self-conceptualizing of the South vis-a-vis the North, now with the positive idea of the Orient as a, in contradistinction to the North. Yeah. No, I think this is really, really fascinating because in a way one of the problems we have is that people find it very difficult to actually understand what a discourse is. And they often confuse it with a sort of singular narrative, in which case when you start talking about how orient constituted around the parameters what the orient defines is not a kind of a particular object but is actually a project which is created by basically the narration of western identifications and whatever that may be varies in context and things like that and you can see and i've i've spoken to many um you'd be surprised to know many very progressive um you know uh Latin scholars and uh, even decolonial scholars and who would make these kinds of, in a more subtle way, the how different things are because we have this experience of flexibility, mixture, we're not really that hung up on it. Yeah, mesti Exactly. Exactly, the notion and, of mesti yeah, and, it, and it's really, really interesting because one of the things that... You the valorization, for example, also of the mulatto yeah. in Brazil. And the very problem of gendered nature, you right. know, how that plays out and all these kinds of various things. And I guess what, I, what is really interesting when I was listening to you is when you were talking about, for example, the um, deorientalizing there, that one of the things that, you know, is, uh, is a prime example of that is the entire Kamalist project in Turkey. Because in a sense, what they was trying to do was firstly have an orientalist un- understanding of their society as being oriental in those problematic ways. Mm-hmm. And then you had to have the cure by having this kind of import of the West as a de, as a de- 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 Absolutely, I think it's true also of 
most places that yeah. experience colonialism and the problem with most mainstream modernity narratives of nationalism. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was true for the whole project of uh, modernity within third world spaces, yeah. uh, where, including of Marxist narrative, Absolutely. because Marxists were also about suppression yeah. of tradition yeah. in the name of progress. Yeah. Yeah. So once you have this narrative of productivity, right, and that's yeah. today in, in indigenous Native American critiques, for example, uh, has been of Marxist. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, because it also shares a product, productivist discourse with, with capitalism, absolutely. with the difference yeah. that it is about equal distribution. Yeah. But what if you challenge the very narrative of productivity? Well, this is very interesting because I mean, one of the things I would just want and, to and that yeah. comes back to a problem, problematic discourse about modernization uh, within nationalism and the well, the the Orientalism as a, a metaphor for modernity. I.e. But also a, 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 a metaphor for nationalization, because that's in a way, and I think this is where I really want to, because um, one of your one of the things, that, many things that your work does, but also it shows a certain kind of the inadequacy of methodological in, uh, nationalism in a way, which haunts the social sciences, all of them, right? So one of the things you do with this deorientalization is the construction of a national historiography. Mm as a kind of biography. And everyone has, it's almost like, every, you know, you have a football team and you have a national history kind of thing. And that's what, you got a flag. And that's what makes you. But in doing so, you actually make it almost impossible to imagine anything as being different. And I think your work, for example, on the kind of the articulation between, let's say, the Jewish and the Islamic experiences, a different kind of context there, really could not be told as a narrative of nationalism. Absolutely. I think uh, what we're doing ultimately is to deconstruct uh, any kind of nationalist and even more so ethno-nationalist yeah. formations, but also historiographies. That, because I think ultimately uh, the field of history emerging in relation to national identities um, has participated, in, even when critiquing violence, say, still participating in a kind of a border uh, and creating certain boundaries that make it impossible for a scholarly critique and intellectual, a new kind of intellectual narrative that new but old, really, but that ultimately refuses this 19th century paradigm to understand identities. And in fact, the violence is epistemological, not only on the ground, as we know, suppression of the various people who lived in the same region, but it uh, uh, prohibits from imagining those type of syncretism and uh, unless they're valorized for a nationalist uh, purpose. Uh, yeah. no. uh, so I think, uh, for example, this case of what I call the Sephardic Moorish unconscious of the yeah. Americas, mm -hmm. It's really about retrieving, and as a, a case study, but of course that could be applied to many other spaces, to exactly this point that you're making, to critique any kind of a nationalist understanding of cultures and the histories that try to contain them within uh, one geography and the borders, of course, even more so of the nation-state. And that's a fantastic way, to, and we could carry on talking um, for many, Absolutely. many years there, and hope the conversation will continue. 
Um, thank you so much. And, thank uh, you. You know, it's been fantastic uh, there. Thank it's you. It's so a much. wonderful journey. And uh, what could be a better place than in Granada? Granada, Turkey. Thanks, Ella. Thank you so Shukran. much. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.